We're actually beginning a new sermon series this week, and it'll go over the course uh, of the next six to eight weeks. But we're actually going to be looking at the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Now, you're familiar with any number of different verses from Isaiah because they get read around Christmas time or at various you know, other moments. But for the most part, my guess is that very few of us have recently read through all 66 books um, or chapters in the book of Isaiah. It was written about 2,800 years ago, so it's really almost 3,000 years old. And piecing together what we know about certain dates and kings of Judah and Israel, it's a pretty safe estimate that Isaiah, this prophet who was called by God, prophesied to Judah for as many as 60 years. So he had a pretty long career as a prophet. It's a lengthy book comprised of 66 chapters. The first 39 really focus on God's judgment of evil. And so that's very much the intentional thrust of those first 39 chapters. Judah and the surrounding nations are practicing idolatry and they're practicing rampant immorality and God refuses to let that sin go unchecked. The last 27 chapters focus more on the sort of the idea or the concept of hope. And the reason for this is because uh, there begins to be a discussion about this Messiah who is coming to make all things new. In fact, chapter 40 begins with the following statement. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's a good reminder of the gospel right there is that Jesus' sacrifice didn't do just enough to cover up your sins, but it's more than enough to cover all of your sins. For God's children, the ultimate message of Isaiah is one of forgiveness. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the people that are in this room this morning, Father. Your word makes it clear that they're not here by accident, but that they're here because of your plan. They're here because you have drawn them here. Father, the people in this room this morning that are walking with you and that know you as their Father and your Son Jesus as their Savior are here this morning because you have adopted them. And so, Father, because you've adopted us, because you've invited us in this place, because you've made it possible for us to sit here righteous and forgiven, uh, brought into your family, Father, please meet us here. I pray that your word would sink down through our heads all the way down into our hearts, that you might not just change the way that we think, but that you might change the way we feel and the way that we live. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in 1997, there was one movie that was um, nominated for nine different Academy Awards. It's called Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting. Maybe some of you have seen the full version. Maybe some of you have seen the USAA, USA Today version or whatever the you know, movie channel is. Um, I can't really recommend it uh, because there's some language in it, but it's a good movie. Obviously, it won two of those Academy Awards. Stars Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Robin Williams, Minnie Driver. And the basic story is about this uh, character named Will, who is played by Matt Damon, and he happens to be a genius. He's got a photographic memory, um, but he also has a very, very troubled past that continues sneaking into his present and continues to sort of ruin his life in any number of different ways. He's finally discovered, and he's offered scholarships at MIT and Harvard and all of these places, but again, he keeps self-destructing. And so at some point in time in the movie, he's introduced to a psychologist Um, whose name is Sean, played by Robin Williams. And so the movie tracks their relationship and some of the healing that Will uh, engages in because of his relationship with Sean. And then at the end of the movie, there's this scene. I'm going to tell you about it in just a moment. But the scene is basically 
where Will asks Robin Williams or Sean, his psychologist, about his now-deceased wife. And so I'm going to read just a little section of the, uh, of the transcript. So Will asks Sean, he says, so when did you know that she was the one for you, right? So when did you know she was the one for you? That's a question a lot of us have. Sean answered, October 21st, 1975. And Will, in shock, says, you remember the actual date? Yeah, it was game six of the World Series, Sean replies. It's the biggest game in Red Sox history. My friends and I had slept out on the sidewalk all night long to get tickets. And Will, amazed, because he's this Boston kid, guess you, you got tickets for that game? And Sean responds by saying, yeah, day of the game. I was sitting in a bar waiting for the game to start, and in walks this girl. And at that point in time, he begins to notice that uh, Will is more interested in the game than the story of meeting his wife. And so he then goes into this lengthy description of how the game was in the 12th inning, and there were two outs. It was the bottom of the 12th, and uh, the Red Sox were tied up, and up walks Carlton Fisk. And he describes how Carlton Fisk swings, hits the ball. It looks like it's going, going, going. This would win the game in the World Series, and it hits the foul pole, but it bounces into fair territory, so it's a home run. And then Sean describes the game of how Carlton Fisk ran around the bases and how the crowd's beginning to rush the field and the police are on the field and Fisk is having to make his way through this crowd and he's pushing people out of the way and Will responds. He goes, did you rush the field? And Sean goes, no, I didn't rush the field. I wasn't there. And Will said, what? And Sean, his counselor, says, no, I was in a bar having a drink with my future wife. And Will responds in disbelief, you missed Carlton Fisk's home run to have a drink with some lady that you'd never met before? To which Sean responded, yeah, but you should have seen her. She was a stunner. And Will responds by saying, who are these friends of yours that they let you get away with that? What did you say to them? Sean said, I just slid my ticket across the table and said, sorry, guys, I got to go see about a girl. And then Will says, that's what you said? And they let you get away with that? Oh, yeah. They saw it in my eyes. They knew that I meant it. Will's like, you're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you, Will. That's why I'm not talking right now about some girl I saw at a bar 20 years ago and how I always regretted not going over and talking to her. I don't regret the 18 years I was married to Nancy. I don't regret the six years I had to give up counseling when she got sick, and I don't regret the last years when she got really sick, and I sure as heck don't regret missing that game. At this point, it's a serious moment, obviously, and Will sort of looks down at the ground. You can tell that he's pondering sort of this story that he's just heard. And he looks back up at his counselor, Sean, and he says, would have been nice to catch that game, though. And Sean responds, sheepishly shrugging, and says, I didn't know Pudge was going to hit a home run. It's a great little scene there. In this movie, Robin Williams' character has an encounter that would change the rest of his life. His future wife was so stunning that he didn't regret missing Game 6 of the World Series or spending the next 12 years of his life caring for his wife as she was dying of cancer. In Isaiah 6, we read of a similar life-changing encounter. This time, instead of a bar in Boston, the location is the temple in Israel. And instead of a young man seeing a beautiful girl, in this case, it's a young prophet encountering the glory of God. Let's look at Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am send me. Now, there's way too much in this passage to dig into, and so I'm going to turn our focus to just a couple things. Uh, The first is just this image of God's glory, God's glory. Look at verses 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. This is sort of all pictures of humility covering his faith to not look at God covering his body to not reveal himself before this king. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, right? Just this amazing vision of God that made the temple shake. When I lived in Atlanta and worked at Perimeter Church, I worked out at a gym that was right next door to the church. It was owned by one of the members of um, Perimeter there who had played center for the Atlanta Falcons and before that for the San Diego Chargers. His name was Roman Fortin, and we got to be pretty good buddies um, over my time there. And except for weighing over 300 pounds, he was kind of a regular guy. We used to talk about football. We would talk about soccer, because in high school he played soccer too. And obviously we talked about God quite a bit. Also at the gym were any number of different former professional athletes one day I pulled up into the parking lot and John Smoltz was throwing the football back and forth with John Rocker. If you guys remember John Rocker or John Smoltz. Andrew Jones was there. John Konkak was there. And there were any number of other players there that who played for the Falcons and the Braves and the Hawks. I mean, they were kind of all over the place. But what I realized really quickly as I got to know some of these guys is they were all just normal people. They really were just normal guys. I never walked in, encountered one of these guys, and was undone, right? That never happened. When these guys walked into a room at Perimeter Church, there was no walk-in music. People didn't swoon, and the ground didn't tremble at their arrival. But look at what happens when Isaiah encounters God. Isaiah sees God high and lifted up upon a throne. This theophany of God is so great that just the train of God's robe filled the entirety of the temple. And as Isaiah looks, he sees that God is flanked on either side by seraphim, these creatures whose name means fiery ones or burning ones. You can imagine that it was quite an intimidating sight. In the presence of Yahweh, Isaiah hears these fiery angels calling out to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As they call out to one another, Isaiah feels the foundations of the temple shake, and he sees the temple filled with smoke. This is an unmistakable, completely visceral encounter with God's glory. Often in Scripture, when God calls someone, he gives them usually just a small glimpse of his glory because it's all we can handle. This is certainly true for Moses, who not only encountered God in the burning bush, but also in Mount Sinai. 
we read in Exodus 19 the following, on the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. It was also true for Elijah, as we read several weeks ago in 1 Kings 19. The earth trembled. There was an earthquake. It was true of Jesus on the Mount of Olives when the soldiers came to arrest him. And if you remember, Jesus revealed himself saying, I am. And at that moment, the soldiers fell to the ground in the presence of Jesus' glory. Each of these are moments where God gives us a glimpse of his majesty, of his glory, and each time the ground trembles. The word translated glory here in the Hebrew is the word kabod, which literally means weight. In other words, the weight of God is so great that when he appears, the earth physically shakes. I'm reminded of the scene in the very first Jurassic Park when the kids are stuck in the car and the downpour outside the T-Rex cage and the power has gone down. If you remember, they're sitting in the car terrified and they hear a series of distant booms and they feel the car shake with each and they watch two cups of water if you remember and the cups of water ripple with each approaching footstep of the giant t-rex none of the dinosaur coloring books or netflix documentaries can effectively capture the weight of the real thing i think it's safe to say that most of what i convey to you here at seven hills fellowship is the grace and the mercy of god and rightly so I believe that God wants us to know him, particularly in light of Jesus and in light of his sacrifice. We need to know and experience God's grace and his mercy, but we also need to know and experience God's glory. An experience of God's glory moves us from theoretical assent to the experience of knowledge, from the dinosaur coloring book to the T-Rex actually standing over the Jeep. A theory about God can be tweaked. A theory about God can be twisted. It can be changed to fit any given historical moment. Some principle about God can be morphed to accommodate the broader culture. A conception of God can be harnessed and possibly used as some means to an end for us and our particular needs or desires. But if Jurassic Park taught us anything, it's that a real T-Rex cannot be contained, and neither can the God of the universe. That's why God reveals to Moses his name as I am, or I will be what I will be. God is both the irresistible force and he is the immovable object. When he shows up, we are the ones who are moved, not the other way around. We are shaken to the core. C.S. Lewis writes of such an encounter in his book, The Horse and His Boy. Toward the end of the book, Aslan reveals himself to the main character, Shasta, under the cover of darkness. I'm going to read just a little section. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost but a new and different sort of trembling came over him. He turned and saw, pacing beside him, taller than a horse, a lion. 
The horse did not seem to be afraid of it or else could not see it. It was from the lion that the light came. No one ever saw anything more terrible or more beautiful. Luckily, Shasta had lived all of his life too far south in Kellerman to have heard the tales that were whispered in Tashban about a dreadful Narnian demon that appeared in the form of a lion. And of course, he knew none of the true stories about Aslan, the great lion, the son of the emperor over the sea, the king above all high kings in Narnia. But after one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at its feet. Some of you remember the moment that you encountered God. Some of you remember the moment that you fell at his feet. I want to invite you just for a moment to recall that experience. I want to invite you just for a moment to remember what it felt like. Where were you? What happened? And more importantly, what happened inside of you and why? I would guess that at that moment, you realized several things. You probably realized that God was bigger than all of your doubts and that he was bigger than all of your fears, that he was God and you were not. At that moment, there were only two logical responses. You could either run or you could surrender. And if you're sitting here this morning, we can assume, hopefully, what decision you made. I would also assume that at that moment, you encountered not only the magnitude of God's glory, but that you were acutely aware of your own sin and acutely aware of your own brokenness. Isaiah definitely was. Look at verse 5. This is also an invitation for us to see our own sin. But verse 5 says this, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He comes into the presence of God and he says, woe is me, because he all of a sudden is aware of his brokenness. And in the same way that our concept of God is often theoretical, so too is the concept of our own sinfulness often theoretical. We can offhandedly quote 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and say, no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man, kind of throw it out there. We can glibly refer to our struggles with pride or boasting or envy. Some of us might even chuckle at past sins when we were in college or in high school, but none of that lightheartedness is an option in the presence of God. Isaiah isn't sheepish. He isn't a little embarrassed. He isn't slightly uncomfortable. Isaiah is utterly undone in the presence of the holiness and the glory of God. His confession bursts from his lips before he's even had time to think. Woe is me, for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips. In the presence of God, there just aren't any excuses. There are no attempts to justify. There's only the humbled utterance of the tax collector in the temple when he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or there's the response of Peter when he encounters Jesus and he realizes that Jesus is more than just a man says that he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. An encounter with the true God ultimately leads to true humility. And in the case of Isaiah, it leads to confession and to God's forgiveness. We read in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah sees the Lord in all 
his glory. He feels the pillars of the temple shake. He hears the seraphim calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Immediately, Isaiah becomes painfully aware of his sin in the presence of God's holiness. And Isaiah confesses saying, woe is me for I am lost for I'm a man of unclean lips. How would this holy God respond to this man in his presence? I'm sure that Isaiah would have admitted that God would have been justified in casting him out of his holy presence, but that's not what happens. What we see next is that one of the burning ones flies to Isaiah with a coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's mouth saying, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Forgiveness is offered at Isaiah's confession. Many of us might be reminded here of 1 John 1.9, where we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Atonement is made. The Hebrew word for atonement is kafar, and it means to cover over or to cancel. The irony is that rather than canceling Isaiah, God cancels his sin. God buries it so that it will never be brought up against Isaiah ever again. This forgiveness and this atonement is accomplished because of a coal taken from the altar, the very altar where sacrifices were made for the forgiveness of sins.